Out of all of the surprising elements of Jonah that we've been noting throughout the last several few weeks, I think it's the way this book ends that sort of takes the cake, so to speak. I think this is perhaps the most surprising element of all, the way this book concludes. So far, as we've noted, the narrative of Jonah has not sort of fit sort of the mold, so to speak, when it comes to books of the Bible. Nothing has really turned out like we have expected it to. It's been a series of surprise after surprise. So in that sense, it should come as no surprise really to us that the conclusion to this book would follow that same trend. And indeed, I think chapter 4 gives us one of the most unexpected and most jarring endings ever recorded. It leaves us truly on a cliffhanger. If you note again, verse number 11, the ending of Jonah can barely be called an ending since it closes with a question that is never answered. Notice, God is inquiring with his one runaway prophet who is now this disgruntled prophet, and he says to him, Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. Should I not have pity on them? And we don't ever know. We are never told. There's no other place you can go to find out how Jonah responded to this question, this inquiry of his own lack of pity for the people of Nineveh. We never know what happened to Jonah. Whether that was his come to Jesus moment, so to speak, or if he dug his heels in even further in his own stubbornness and self-righteousness. But I think because this book doesn't really have an ending, at least how we would perhaps like to have it, I think that's what makes it so profound and so thought-provoking. Because with no answer supplied, with no sort of answer to tell us that everything was uh, nice and and neatly wrapped up with a nice little bow and everything just finished happily and go lucky and all that kind of stuff, we don't get that answer. Because of that fact, I think this very same question ought to be asked of us. And indeed, I think that's the case. As Jonah is sort of being cross-examined by his Lord, we too are being cross-examined by him, asking us, do we really have a right sort of frame of mind when it comes to the pity of God for people that we think don't deserve it? That's what's, on, that's what's being asked here. When God puts his prophet on blast for his lack of compassion and his lack of concern for the people of Nineveh, I think he's putting us on blast too. And maybe that might startle you. Maybe you might think that that sounds a little bit too blunt for a Sunday morning, Pastor Brad, but I think that's the point. Jonah is a startling book. It should be. It should be a surprising book to us. We shouldn't try to get ahead and predict where it's going. It's a book that ought to startle us. And it ought to startle us by this display that God gives us of just this startlingly unstoppable mercy that he displays for people, again, that don't deserve it. That's what I think the narrative of this book is, is all about. It's meant to surprise us. It's meant to catch us off guard. 
with how sovereign God is, with how uh, much involvement he has in the everyday happenings of life. That's what, what, what was so fascinating about the first chapter, where even as Jonah thinks he's running from God, and he's making all these decisions, who is actually overrunning him? It's actually God who is chasing him down. But here, we're given a glimpse, uh, also not of just the surprising sovereignty that God has, but the surprising amount of compassion that he has. And I think even... Still, both of those themes are on full display in this closing chapter. As we noted last time, chapter 3 ends with an amazing turn. Jonah, perhaps regrettably, but who knows what his mindset was. He goes back to Nineveh after being spat back out of the whale's belly. And he goes to Nineveh and preaches. And he preaches a message of coming disaster for the people of Nineveh. And they receive this message With repentance and contrition and humility. Jonah, this sort of reluctant preacher, so to speak, preaches a message that leads to a wave of remorse and repentance that sweeps over an entire city. Every Assyrian, we are told, is brought to their knees. Verse 5 of chapter 3, from the greatest of them to the least of them. A citywide revival is happening inside. People, indeed I would say, are declaring their faith in God most high. And this is startling in and of itself as we've noted, as we've seen. Because this is Nineveh. This is the people of Assyria. They are people who didn't know much in the way of mercy. They were violent. They were cruel. They were brutal. And here they are being treated in the opposite of those ways. They're repenting, they're praying, they're crying out to God. That's startling in and of itself. But I think what is even more startling than that is, again, noting Jonah's response. So again, people of Nineveh repent. God turns from the disaster that he said that he would do. And then notice verse 1, again, of chapter number 4. You have this great revival and then yet this incredible transition. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. Both the amazing and very perhaps unexpected spiritual turn that is on display by the people of Nineveh, and also God's own unexpected turn from the disaster that he said that he would do to the people of Nineveh, caused Jonah to become this sulking, sniveling little mess. He's crying out to God in a prayer that could barely be called a prayer that's made up of nothing but just intense anger and displeasure all directed at God. How dare you, God? I knew that this was happening. That's what he says. I'm exceedingly angry with you. Notice this prayer. Oh, Lord, is not this what I had said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee away from you, to flee to Tarshish. Because I knew, I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful and slow to anger and abounding and steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. Not at all. The response that you would expect to read from the preacher whose preaching has just led to revival, right? You wouldn't think that he would be 
crying and sniveling and and trying to, to get back at God. How dare you, God, treat them as a God who is both slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He's furious. He is fuming. And you notice he's trying to justify his demeanor. He's trying to justify his feelings. He's trying to justify everything. Not only in the past when he ran from God, but he's now trying to justify his present disgust for the way things have turned out. I knew that this was happening. That's why I ran away in the first place. I didn't want to have any part of this. See, in Jonah's mind, in his perspective, his feelings are entirely reasonable and justifiable. He's perfectly right to be acting this way in his mind, to be acting like a little toddler who's not getting their way. And now he's crying because Nineveh is actually repenting. And he thinks that's right. Nobody in their right mind, perhaps, would have ever thought that a city like Nineveh, filled with people like the Ninevites, should ever be treated with an ounce of kindness, with an ounce of mercy. Because they were the least likely of all people to show mercy and kindness to other people, to their opponents. But as Jonah confesses, he knew. He knew that this was the type of God that he represented. And he couldn't stand this outcome. He couldn't stand it. That's that's what's causing him to spiral in this little moment as he's crying to God, venting all his frustrations to God for God treating these people who needed mercy with mercy. And he couldn't stand it. He couldn't stand to see it. And I'd hasten to say, I'd wager to say that next to no one in Jonah's day would have been okay with this turn of events either. No one would have been cheering and and applauding and and just standing on their feet and, and shouting that Nineveh is repenting. Nineveh deserved judgment. They deserved to be punished. They deserved to pay for all the crimes, for all of the atrocities, for all of the cruelties that they had inflicted upon the rest of the world. They deserved to pay for that. They should have got what was coming to them. They should have got their comeuppance. They should have got what was coming for them on from on high. And if only Jonah had not have opened his mouth, they would have. At least that's what perhaps many other people thought. And I think even in my mind, I think that's why Jonah throws this temper tantrum in the first place. Why? Because now his name is forever linked to the redemption of a group of people who everyone loved to hate. And wanted to see destroyed. No one wanted to give leniency to the people of Nineveh. And now Jonah's name is the name that's linked to the fact that now leniency is being shown to, yes, the Ninevites. The Assyrians. The terrorists of the ancient world who have no ounce of pity for any of the people that they ever come up against. Seeing all this unfold just proves too much for Jonah. And it leads him to cry out to God, just, just take my life. Just end it now, he says, verse 3. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to, to die than to live. Just let me die, God. Just end it all now. <laughs> his displeasure and his 
distaste for this, this incredible display of mercy that God has shown towards Nineveh brings him so low that now, once again, he doesn't even want to witness it. He doesn't even want to be around to see what's going to happen with that city, so to speak. He just wanted to see the amazing effects that God's grace can have on people who are desperate for it. He just wanted to be around to witness it. So he's crying, he's, he's pouting, he's moping. And yet, surprisingly enough, in the middle of all that fury, in the middle of all that crying, in the middle of all of that frenzy, notice again who shows up. God does. He's crying, he's, he's complaining. He's crying out to God in just this anger that he thinks is justified, but it clearly is not. And then what does God say? And the Lord said to him, verse 4, Do you do well to be angry? It should surprise us that, in a way, God shows up to speak to his reluctant prophet, who is now just a prophet who's pouting. But I think it should surprise us even more, that God shows up not to lay into him, not to sort of give him a word of cruelty or harsh judgment or anything like that. Instead, what does he show up doing? He shows up with a probing question that seeks to shake Jonah out of this little fit of rage that he's in, shake him out of his pity party, shake him out of his temper tantrum. Do you do well to be angry? God's question to Jonah I think it's just another, another glimpse, another revelation that God's heart is filled with compassion. Yes, he's seeking to correct his prophet, but he's not laying the hammer down, so to speak. He's coming and asking him to see how wayward he has gone. To see how far he has strayed in his own mind away from the things of the Lord. That's a gracious correction, so to speak. The Lord had every right to show up with... Guns blazing, if you will. Demanding that Jonah explain himself. How dare you, Jonah, God could have said. How dare you act this way. How dare you have the gall to respond so childishly, so so foolishly, so selfishly. What have you to say for yourself? God could have done that. He could have shown up and asked them such questions, such line of reasoning. But again, since his ways aren't our ways, and since he is so unlike us when it comes to mercy and compassion and grace and patience, he doesn't do that. Instead, he comes up beside this disgruntled prophet and asks him a question, all so that Jonah might be led to repent. Again, his heart, God's heart is concerned, yes, not only for the people of Nineveh, he's concerned for his prophet, he's concerned for Jonah, he's concerned for the ways that he's misunderstood what God was trying to do. He's concerned for his soul. And in a way, I think this question that occurs here in chapter 4, verse 4, but it occurs again later on in the narrative in chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse 9. To me, both of these questions are very reminiscent of that scene from Genesis chapter 3. If you remember, Genesis 3 is that, that infamous chapter that records the fall of Adam and Eve, where Eve and Adam both chose to eat of the fruit, disobeying the Lord's words in a choice that they make themselves. And yet, what do we see in that chapter? 
That even after they have made the fateful choice to rebel against God's established order, what occurs? Verse 9 is a wonderful verse in chapter 3 of Genesis. It's God calling out to them, where are you? Omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent God. He's asking where they are. You catch the irony of that? He already knows where they are. He already knows what they've done. And he calls them out anyways. Why? Because those are words that are inviting them to confess. In order that he can embrace them again. And I I think a similar moment occurs with Jonah here. He's being invited to confess. God wants Jonah to see that his anger is not justified. He is not right in his feelings of fury for what has transpired in Nineveh. And he's inviting Jonah to see it. To own up to it. To see all of this foolish behavior that he's displaying. Jonah digs his heels in, though. He decides to exit the city and get a seat, perhaps, for what he hopes will be an eventful next few days. Look at verse 5. Even after that question, it says, And Jonah went out of the city. And he sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. And he sat under it in the shade till he should, should see what would become of the city. What is he expecting to happen? I think very likely that he's expecting that disaster is still going to strike. That in some sort of foreknowledge of God, that perhaps there was this moment of mercy, but they would still get what was coming for them. I think he's trying to get a front row seat for disaster still coming upon Nineveh like it did Sodom and Gomorrah in the tales of old. And here we have the irony. An irony that should strike us. And indeed, this irony should startle us. Inside the walls of Nineveh, what's happening? A massive revival, an outbreak of repentance is ongoing and still going on. And it's rapidly spreading. And outside the walls, a preacher is found sulking and moping around. Why? Why is Jonah in such a huff here? Why is he so off base? How could he go from preaching to the Ninevites to being so distressed that they responded positively to his preaching? How does that make sense? Why is Jonah reacting like this? Well, I think the answer is quite simple, actually. I think Jonah is reacting this way because Jonah did not understand grace. I think the most profound fact of this whole book is that Jonah has misunderstood the grace of God. God's unmerited favor for people who don't deserve anything from him. It's God showing favor for those sorts of people. Grace, quite simply put, is getting something you don't deserve. And Jonah's view of it was severely limited. It was severely small. And again, I think this should startle us. It's Jonah, the preacher. Jonah, the man of God. The one who serves the people of God. He's the one who's seen pouting over the grace of God being given to people that he says they don't deserve it. On those people, the wrong sort of people are getting grace. (laughs) 
And however, even as Jonah is having this little pity party, God shows up. And he shows up in order to teach Jonah a lesson about his grace by sort of giving him a parable of nature, if you will. Look at verse 6. Jonah's pouting outside the city. He's made this makeshift little lean-to, so to speak. And it says what? Verse 6. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade for his head. To save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant and uh, <clears throat> attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint, and he asked that he might die, and said, It is better for me to die than to live. Perhaps you're familiar with this part of the story. God causes a plant or a gourd or some sort of vine to sprout overnight. And we can do scratch it. We don't have to sort of identify what type of plant it is. There's all types of theory on what it might be. But the point is what? God appointed it to be there. And he appointed it to grow overnight. And grow so much that it would provide a relieving amount of shade for Jonah's head. Saving him from the blistering heat of the sun. But yet just as quickly as that plant appears, so too does it disappear. As also, God not only appointed that plant to sprout and grow overnight, he appoints a worm the next night to come up and attack and devour that plant. And so now Jonah's covering, his shade is ruined. Leading him with next to no shelter, next to no relief to withstand the scorching east wind that God had also appointed. And this sends him spiraling. If he wasn't already low before, now he very much so is now. Where he cries out again, God just just end it. Take, Take my life, God. Take it away. I don't want to be here. He's depressed, he's defeated. He has a front row seat to his nations, to Israel's most violent enemies, being on the receiving end of mercy. And now to add injury to his insult, he is now on the verge of heat stroke. Jonah's not (laughs) happy-go-lucky. And yet even as he's sitting and he's sulking, notice again who shows up. It's God. God once again shows up to speak to this frustrating prophet. Again, verse 9. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow. Which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? You see, again, one, much, I see in this little instance something so fascinating. Because, again, much like Jesus in the Gospels would sometimes explain his parables. 
Here, God is sort of showing up to explain this sort of parable of nature that is meant to give Jonah a lesson of grace. He's trying to explain that to him so he gets to the root of it. So he sees what is true about the grace of God. And the Lord's words to Jonah are not filled and they're not laced with irritation or outrage. These words come from a patient heavenly father who cannot be flummoxed or frustrated. And he comes up beside him. And he speaks to him these words that are almost like words of a counselor or some sort of therapist. Who aims to show Jonah how he's totally misread everything that has gone on around him. Hey Jonah, do you feel justified? Do you feel right in your anger over this plant? And Jonah's like, yeah, I have every single right to be angry. And I'm so angry that I just want to die. You see, as I understand it, Jonah's justification, so to speak, the reason why he feels so right in his anger over this plant, it stems from his entitlement. It stems from the fact that he is an entitled little prophet. And he's operating out of that entitlement. He's operating out of that sense of deservedness. You see, Jonah was angry about the plant because he thought that he was owed the gracious shade that the plant offered. In Jonah's mind, he had a right to that thing. That vine, that gourd that, was, that sprouted up overnight and gave him the shade and relief. He thought he deserved it. He thought that he, has, he was owed it. Therefore, when that right was taken away, when it was so cruelly taken away from him, when what he deserved or what he thought that he deserved was devoured, his anger in his mind was justifiable. I have every right to be angry. You took away what I deserved. And the point that God strives to make to him is that he's owed nothing. He doesn't deserve anything. Again, verse 10. And the Lord said, you pity The plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. Jonah had no involvement in the cultivation of that little gourd. He did not labor for it. He did not make it grow. He was, quite literally, we could state it this way, he was enjoying the shade of something that he had no entitlement to, that he had no involvement in, he had no ownership of. Indeed, the shade and the relief that that plant offered was entirely a gift of grace that sprang out of the undeserved pity of God's heart. That's where it came from. It sprouted a night and it went away in a night to teach Jonah a lesson. That Jonah himself was on the receiving end of God's pity, his compassionate concern, even at a time when he didn't deserve it. Even when Jonah is at his very worst, God is giving him a little bit of relief. Why? Because he's showing him that's the type of God he is. We have this conversation sometimes with our kids. Lydia and Braxton, 
They take after their dad's own heart. They love dessert. It's the best part of any meal. And sometimes, as you know, if you've had dinners with little kids, they aren't always on their best behavior throughout dinner. And they suddenly feel incredibly full. Except for when you offer brownies or something like that. Then they have way more extra space in their stomachs. And sometimes, though, they've been so naughty that you don't want to give them dessert. Now, you didn't deserve this tonight. You didn't. You, didn't, you weren't on your best behavior or you were doing some and such sort of thing. And sometimes Natalie and I will take them through and say, we're going to give you this even though you don't deserve it. And we're, try, and, and we're not trying to always be theological with our kids, but we're saying this is what grace looks like. It's being given dessert when you've thrown your broccoli on the floor. Essentially, that's what you could think of. And I think a similar thing is happening to Jonah. He's being given a kid's little lesson. This is what grace looks like. Is being given shade when you're outside the city pouting and moping and griping. In the middle of, the, of a moment when he didn't deserve it at all. In the middle of his ranting and his raving. He's being given a gift of grace he did not deserve. That he wasn't owed in the slightest. Which is what exactly has transpired in Nineveh. Again, verse 11. Should I not have pity on Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 people who don't know their right from their left? Jonah, you're concerned. You are getting all irate over a plant that's fleeting, that's fickle, and it goes away in a second. That you have no ownership of. That you have no entitlement to. That you don't deserve. I am God. The one who has made everything. My concern is for eternal souls. And I do have a right. To pity them. Because I'm the one who's made them. (laughs) Your heart burns and breaks over a gourd that you thought you deserved. But my heart burns and breaks for souls that are desperate For grace. And they don't even know it. That's what God tells Jonah. You see Jonah's biggest. Blunder so to speak. Is a failure to understand. That God's grace. Always. Is always undeserved. And always falls. On those who least deserve it. That's what makes it grace. That's what makes it unmerited favor. If it was favor you could merit, then it wouldn't be free and it wouldn't be grace. It would become a wage. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 4. If the favor of God is something we earn, it's no longer a free gift. It's a wage. It's like your paycheck. You do the labor to get the check at the end of the week. That's not what God's gift is. The gift of himself is not a paycheck. It's not a wage. It's a gift he gives. And Jonah had gotten lost. He had gotten so mired. Maybe, maybe it was his, his pedigree. Maybe it was his position. Maybe it was his own pride. Or maybe it was a combination of all three. But whatever the case, Jonah was acting as if grace, as if God's unmerited favor and unrelenting mercy was something that he was owed. It was something that he deserved. It was something that he had earned. But again, as soon as you twist the grace of God into something that you are owed, you can be sure that you've made an idol of your own worthiness. Yeah, I deserve that. I've looked at all the things I've done. I just look at who I am. I, I deserve that. 
That's Jonah here in this moment. He had forged, we could call it, an idol out of his own bloated sense of worthiness and achievement. Failing to remember his own words. Flip back to chapter number 2. Look at verse 8. This is really fascinating that Jonah forgot this. Jonah 2 verse 8. Those, Jonah prays, in the belly of the fish. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. And that's exactly what transpired for Jonah. He paid regard to the idol of his own vain self-importance. And in so doing, he had abandoned, forsaken his hope, uh, his true hope of what steadfast love looks like. Jonah, of course, has no leg to stand on. He has no case. There's no argument that he can make to sort of justify his actions or his feelings, but in his own sort of misshapen idol of self-righteousness and self-importance, that's what's blinding him to see the irony of this whole scene. He is angry at God for showing a divine dose of compassion and patience to a wayward and wicked group of people when he himself was a recipient of that same divine compassion and patience. That's the irony. He was on the receiving end of what he was getting mad at God for dishing out. It's once again reminiscent of the scene at the end of Luke chapter 15. Go with me to there really quick. I think the scene of Luke 15, specifically the parable of the prodigal son, as is most often referred to, is one of the most important little pictures that help us understand what occurs at the end of Jonah. What happens? Luke 15, at the end, in verse 25 through 32, what do we have occur? We have a father going out to his sniveling, sulking son. Who is pouting while a party is happening on the inside. (laughs) Look at verse 25. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. A party is already going on. The older brother who has been laboring and toiling in the fields for years on end perhaps comes home to find a celebration is happening. What is this party about and why did you start without me? And he called one of the servants and asked them, verse 26, what these things meant. What's going on? What are we celebrating? And he, the servant, said to him, your brother, that prodigal foolish brother of yours, the one who demanded his inheritance before your dad was dead, And then went out and squandered it, fritted it away on riotous living. He's back. He has come home. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he, the older son, was angry and refused to go in. But his father came out and entreated him. But he, the older son, answered his father. 
Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has devoured your poverty, or excuse me, devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? And he said to him, Son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Why is this brother so mad? Why is he so frustrated? Why is he so angry? It's not because they've started a party without him. Oh, that might be part of it. I think it's because like Jonah, this older son was... Operating out of this understanding that the kindness of his father was a blessing that he had merited, that he had earned by way of service, by way of obedience, by what he had done. Again, look at verse 29. Notice what he says. These many years I have served you and I've never disobeyed you. I've always been straight and narrow. I've never veered off to the right or the left. I've never disobeyed what you've said. I've always gotten up at the crack of dawn, done all my chores, done everything that I needed to do. I've labored, I've toiled, I've struggled, I've worked. And you've never given me something like this. You see, in the eyes of this older son, he thought he was deserving of this favor. Of his dad because of his labor. He thought he was owed the love of his dad because of what he had done. Because of how he had worked for it. And that's what makes him so ticked off that when his younger brother comes, who comes away from that far country, he comes back home after having wasted all of his dad's money, after having really not doing anything, and now this younger brother is on the receiving end of his father's affection, of his father's benevolence. That should have been my party, Dad. That should have been my friends. That should have been my food. That should have been my celebration. Why aren't you celebrating me? You see, as soon as you think that the unmerited favor of God, as soon as you think that the grace of God is something that you are entitled to, you've forgotten what grace is. You've forgotten the whole thing. The grace of God... To use the terminology of Jonah, his pitiable concern for the lost, it's not a wage that we can earn. Nor is it a badge that we can win. And it's not a blessing that we deserve. Grace is entirely and absolutely undeserved. And it's always a gift given to the undeserving. To prodigals. To Ninevites, to sinners. You see, Jonah is a book that gets to the heart of what the rest of the Bible reveals. It gets to the heart of the gospel. And what is that? It's the announcement that the sacrificial death and resurrection of God's own son is a gift that God gives indiscriminately out of his grace. And it's a gift of grace offered to the undeserving, which is a category that includes everyone. No one deserves the offer of Christ's passion and death. 
And him assuming your sin so that he can give you his righteousness. But yes, that's the good news. We are given it anyway. Even though we don't deserve it. Even though we are owed something else. This is what God in Christ has designed, has desired from before the foundation of the world to give each and every single one of us. It's a gift of grace. It's a celebration for the prodigal returning. It's a, it's, it's a rejoicing at the repentance of the people that were, were thought to be so far gone, turning back to the God who is ready to embrace them. But like Jonah, if you think that you deserve grace while others do not, it's both a byproduct of and a catalyst for a heart that is calloused and self-preoccupied and self-righteous. That's Jonah here in this scene. He's closing himself off from the pity of the people of Nineveh for their predicament, for their plight. And instead, he's keeping his blinders on so all that he sees is himself and his own needs. That's what self-preoccupation does. That's what self-righteousness does. That's what a bloated sense of our own worthiness and achievement does. It blinds us to the needs of others. And how they too might be the prime candidates who need the grace of God. And you see what Jonah displays is the exact opposite of what God and Christ has done for the likes of you and for me. That's what the Bible tells us. The good news of God announces that this is Psalm 72, 13. That he has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. That's what the whole Bible is about. It's about that announcement that God who has spoken everything into existence. What has his attention? What has his concern? The pitiable plight of sinners like you and me. And because... Because his heart is so filled with compassion, that's his posture. That's his posture to the world. He has pity on the weak and the needy, not because the needy deserve it, not because they have labored for it, not because they've done anything to work their way into a better standing with God, not because they've done something to earn this favor, but only because he is a God whose heart burns for the lost and the needy and the weak and the most desperate of sinners in the whole entire world. That's who, that's who God's heart burns for. Flip back a couple pages. Let, read, this, read this awesome verse. Hosea. If you just go back to the left in your Bible from Jonah. Go to Hosea chapter 11. Listen to God's words. I love what he says here. Even as his own, this is a prophecy given to his own people, the people of Israel. People who have turned away from him countless time after countless time after countless time. And notice what he says. Hosea 11 verse 8. Listen to these words. I love these words. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? 
How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zebuim? My heart recoils within me. My, pa- my compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst. And I will not come in wrath. Even after all of the countless times Israel had turned away from him, what is God's posture and position towards them? It's one in which his heart is burning for the weak and the needy. That's everyone. God's word is a revelation of that. Flip through any page you want, go to any story you want, go to any sort of book of the Bible that you want. All of this book deals with one important, all important message. It's a revelation, it's a revealing, it's a showcasing that he in his heart has uh, unfathomable depths of favor and compassionate concern precisely for those who don't deserve it. That's what the Bible tells us about. That's what the good news is. God's gospel, it it tells us all about how God's son has looked with unmerited pity and unrelenting mercy on a world full of pitiable, problematic sinners who don't know their own predicament, who don't know their right hand from their left. And he, that same son of God, has assumed their predicament as his own. That's Philippians chapter 2. You don't have to go there. We can read it. That's what it talks about. Actually, I'll go there anyways. Philippians 2. Let me read those verses. Philippians 2, verse 4. Listen, Paul says this. Let each of you, this is his encouragement to the church of Philippi. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to have the interests, but also to the interests of others. He's getting them to be others-oriented, others-minded, to again take the blinders off to the people around them that are needy and weak and need grace. And how can they do that? By verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That is the gospel in a nutshell. God, unlike Jonah, he looked with pity and compassion on people who didn't deserve it and is said of sulking and, and sniveling and throwing a pity party for himself outside of the city. What does Jesus do outside of the city? He sacrifices himself for those who didn't deserve it. For those whose own interests were their own. What does Jesus do? He takes up their plight as his own. He takes up their predicament and their problem as his own. He takes up their sin as if he was the one who had, had perpetrated it. Why? Because God's heart is filled 
with boundless sympathy for sinners. So much so that God condescends. He comes to where sinners are in order to rescue them from certain damnation. That's who Jesus is. He is the embodiment of God's compassionate concern and the embodiment of God's pity for the whole world. And that's what grace is. It's the undeserved gift of absolution and forgiveness given to the undeserving because of the undeserved death of God's only son. That is the amazing thing you have to see. That Jesus didn't get what he deserved. Why? So that we could get what we don't deserve. That's what the gospel tells us. Is that he was getting something that he didn't earn. That he didn't do anything to receive. Why? So that he could give us something that we didn't earn. That we didn't do anything to receive. That is the amazing announcement of God's grace. It's not something that we should take advantage of. It's not something that we can just fritter away and and, and not have any bearing on our life. You see, that is the enormity of what occurs when we announce the grace of God. It's not just God being easy on you. It's God giving you a gift that you in no way deserve and never ever could. You could never work your way into earning this thing that he has given for free. And it changes your whole life. See, the question that concludes Jonah is, as we've noted, one that is not only directed at Jonah himself, but it's also directed at us as well. This cross-examination that occurs here is a cross-examination of us. Are we revulsed By the grace of God being given to, quote unquote, the wrong sort of people? Do we see sometimes something occur and we're like, man, they didn't didn't deserve that? Or do we recognize that we too are the wrong sort of people? Are we living as if grace is something we deserve? As if we have a right to the favor of God? Or are we rejoicing? And that undeserved gift. If you, you don't have to go there, but if you still have your finger there, go back to Luke 15. I'll close with this. Because we see the contrast. A contrast that is so apparent. Because Jonah is reluctant and he's fuming and he's mad and he's throwing a temper tantrum. Notice what Jesus says in all of his parables. Luke 15 verse 5. After the the one sheep that was lost is found, what happens? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. When he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you. There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Here we see the contrast. If you're getting disgruntled at God's grace being shown to people that you think don't deserve it, it's likely because you think that you've done something to earn it or win it or deserve it. 
But those who know that they don't deserve God's grace are those who rejoice in his grace the most. And that's what church ought to be. When we come in here, we are being reminded of what happens. We are being reminded that all that we are and all that we have, it's not because of us. It's not anything we are entitled to. It is all a gift out of the pity of God and his heart for us. We are here because of grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. We sing that song and we, we barely even let it register what it's talking about. Have you ever considered how amazing the grace of God is? For wretched sinners like you and me. We don't deserve it, and yet God gives it to us freely. May we learn the lesson of Jonah. May we be able to answer the question and not sit and sulk, but rejoice. Rejoice in the gracious favor of God given to the undeserving, given to sinners like you and me. Let us pray.